Welcome to the podcast of Small Differences with Ian and Otis. Well, that was exhausting. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I We're recording the day after the Kavanaugh hearings, and, you know, we're not, we're obviously not going to discuss it in depth because, mostly because we just can't do it justice, right? Like, there are a million other better podcasts about, uh, that will cover it. I, I personally am going to listen to the 538 discussion later today, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'll say yesterday was an exhausting day. Um, and like, I don't know, I guess you add the Facebook news in on top of that. And I, it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think everybody probably agrees with us. And like, you know, like I believe in our audience, like you all are like, know that we have strong opinions, some of them about politics, some of them don't agree with your politics. Um, but like, just suffice it to say that like every, like everyone were, we're all exhausted and, you know, the other, the other breaking pieces of news were kind of like, shut up. The, the grownups are talking like <laughs> Facebook's using your two factor authentication phone, oh. phone numbers to do ad targeting, which is, I'm like, I'm mostly a permissive, you know, go, go, go get them, sell them all the ads type human, but Jesus Christ, <laughs> Facebook. Um, and also the SEC's um, suing suing Tesla and yeah <laughs> yeah burn it all down just everyone just just go out smash store windows uh, riot in the streets like burn it all down I I will not advocate for that I don't um, really advocate for that but that's how I feel right yeah now. but but suffice to say it was an exhausting day yesterday um, so let's see where we end up today yes let's yes hopefully today will be better last episode we promised that we would talk about my workflow which is promises to be a sprawling and strange topic (laughs) i think yeah which like is kind of part of the reason that like i i thought that we should separate it out into its own kind of category almost Mm -hmm. um because I I think it would definitely be instructive for a lot of people uh, to get some sense for if you're if you're coming into this sort of more from more from the analyst uh, side and you you know if you were doing this call it 20 years ago like your natural tool would be spreadsheets uh, like how has the world kind of evolved for you? How do you how do you approach doing your work? And then I, I'm I'm hoping that that leads us into like a couple of other interesting things in terms of like uh, how one might start to think about tools. Yeah, um, I, I think spread. Yeah, I think that's right. Like the first thing I ever really learned how to do was spreadsheets. I got a job at Google based off of a ten minute phone interview where they quizzed me on, like, what would you do with this problem? What would you do with that problem? It was all, like, spreadsheet-based, right? It was all, like, well, well, in Excel, what would you do? How would you do this? And they'd be like, I'd do that. And then they were like, okay, that's good enough. You can work on this, like, fairly minor HR role. So so they were, like, literally checking, do you know Excel commands? Yeah. They were, like, as with everything with Google, 
it was like it was secretly a very well thought out thing, even though it was small. Uh, even though it was like a small thing, like they were asking questions that were testing like my ability to like suss out the problems from within the world of spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. But even at that point, like I had had experience using syntactics, syntactical code, and written VBA code, mm-hmm. and like I was definitely a believer in that. Like spreadsheets are useful. Spreadsheets are bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> spreadsheets are you know they're you know they're. There's something that is easier in the short run and much longer, much harder in the long run. Yeah. Um, and that was not something that, like, if you follow my Twitter account, probably one of the more, more mystifying elements that pops up over and over again is me yelling about Stata. And you probably don't even know what Stata is. So I'll tell you, it is like the default um, piece of analysis software for, it's not just Economist. I think uh, bio, it was developed for bioinformatics, actually, first. Um, and then other social scientists tend to use SPSS, and I used both of those in my, you know, in my undergraduate and like as my master's degree. And then in consulting, we used an awful lot of SPSS also. Yeah, I, I've I've run into uh, a number of psychologists uh, who use Stata. Yeah, I think um, they tend to mostly use SPSS though. That's yeah, that that could certainly be the case that the first time I saw that piece of software I was like I don't understand how anyone could enjoy doing anything with data if like this is what they have to use it, it's like I haven't used it in 10 years and like okay so the reason why I don't like I get upset at econ departments because they continue to push data is because it's like there's a really robust branch of economic theory that says if you're training someone in school, like you're doing a public service, and then you're also investing in that person's private, like there's a private return to education. Mm-hmm. So if you give them a piece of software that is like expensive to use, like literally like their employer or they are going to have to pay a license for it, and it has like a high barrier between um, different professions, you're costing them future earnings, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're, you're doing the wrong thing as a teacher. You're making it easier for you to teach, and you are making it harder for them to earn or learn. Yeah. And so, like, it really, really upsets me when, like, econ departments, which I think should have a firm grasp on this, pretty well-documented, pretty nicely, pretty airtight theoretical, and also, like, it's got some nice empirics behind it, too. Yeah. They should be teaching you R. They should be teaching you Python. Yeah. They're not. Like, there, there are some out there, but, like, you can go out there and find that still most, like, econ departments are pushing Stata, and probably most uh, psych departments are pushing SPSS. Yeah. Um, so, so this is in stark contrast to, to, uh, to the harder... Uh, st- harder. <laughs> I'm using harder in the... Not... He doesn't mean more not difficult. Not more difficult. But then just... Yeah, actually, yeah. I'm not sure what we mean by hard sciences versus soft yeah, sciences anymore. Now that I think about it. So this is, this is in contrast to the STEM departments mm-hmm. where, like... I mean, when I came through them, they were all using things like things like MATLAB, which is a great piece of software, and uh, especially at the time, call it 10 years ago, 10, 10, 10 15 years ago, uh, it was hard to find uh, a piece of software that would perform as well. Like, like, they had put a ton of work into the optimization engine, so you could run numerical calculations really, really quickly, and not have to write things in Fortran. 
um, which is if anyone, if any of you have have to use Fortran in, in your day to day in your day to day job, I, I feel terribly for you. But thank you for doing your service to society <laughs> because we do need Fortran programmers. Um, basically, like all of those departments use MATLAB because it was easy to get it up and running. Uh, but if you ever then transitioned into the workforce and found out what that thing actually cost. Like, it was horrifically expensive, but to their credit, like, the moment that the, that the, the open source ecosystem, like, legitimately started to catch up, they all started to swap, uh, mostly, pro- like, probably more driven by the labor market than anything else in terms of, like, as, as you know, as firms like Google started to switch over uh, uh, to... Uh, to to uh, using Python instead. If you're an engineering department and you're still using MATLAB, like you're now out of sync with where you want to send your students. And so, you know, they swapped over and it kind of just like benefited everybody. Yeah, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure like what the institutional problems here are. Engi- I mean, an engineering department's not building little academics, right? Like the object... Yeah. Like you definitely get the feeling from working in an econ, like doing undergraduate econ, that the point of getting an undergraduate econ degree is so that you have a shot at getting a PhD, so you have a shot at getting being a professor. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that makes it surprisingly less biased towards the, uh, like what's going to get you a job. Uh, the physics departments that I was involved with swapped too. Right, where so that is still that that's the is, same yeah. model, right? Yeah, so like I, I, it, it, it's hard it is definitely hard to say like exactly what it is. Uh, but you know, if there are any students out there listening, if like your department is shoehorning you into this, like you need to go learn something else. Yeah. And, uh, and like the good news is like, it's, it's probably like, if you can learn Stata, you can learn R, you can learn yeah. Python. Like there's not, it's not that different. Like you, you know, the syntaxes are going to be different. I, you know, probably like a lingering bias from learning something like Stata first was that I really want to be able to insert like um, summary statistics on, at a row level on most of my data sets. And that's like not a natural operation for like for most of the um, statistical software world. Um, like, but in Stata, it's like one command. Yeah. Right. And it's one of those ones where like, you know, your economists and social scientists are using that a lot because you're running, you're either normalizing by um, a mean a lot mm-hmm. um, through your standard operations, or in the case of psychologists, I think that like running a massive amount of like categorical tests on a data set, where suddenly you want to be able to like compare every single like z-score in a population to uh, like perform some statistical test and see what that population looks like is pretty useful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, right. My workflow, however, like, is not that anymore. Um, and the, like, it, it also has different, it's been different at every job I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, like, someone who comes in with a strong, like, a strong sense of what I should be working on for any given company. Like, I kind of get a feel for, like, what people are already working on and try and tackle something where I have a, a comparative advantage. Uh, do you mean working on or working with? 
So in terms of working with, I want to run to wherever people, uh, whatever tools people are working with for mm -hmm. the most part. Like, I try to be pretty agnostic about what my tool set should be. In uh, at Clover, I use Python because that was like the thing that you were the most like comfortable using, and it made sense um, given that we like there was a high probability that we'd be trying to push stuff from analytics to um, like system systemized analytics to actual like prediction code mm -hmm. to actual software at open door i used more r because mm -hmm. i was doing a lot more small sam small uh sample size analysis of either marketing or like experiment data mm -hmm. that had um censured events on it it was like how long is this like we have this set of houses that have been on the market like for a couple of months. Some of them have sold, some of them haven't. They all started at different times. That you like doing that analysis in Python still kind yeah, of kind of a bear. Yeah, I think we might have talked about that a little bit and yes, in the first episode that that's that's a place where like it's it, in my opinion, R R as a tool chain really shines. Uh, and like Python is a little bit painful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was I was honestly a little surprised. One because I'd been using Python for like basic stuff for a while. Yeah, and I hadn't really used R in a while. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh well, like this is like when it comes to like reading my model outputs and doing the stuff where I'm doing basic analysis. Yeah, like there's much easier to get that out of like yeah. a fewer a smaller set of R commands and then just like the way R is set up like with all those silly library calls <laughs> um, really does allow you to be like I need like you can find the right statistical tool for the right job yeah. modulo like you may not understand that tool yeah. and it could be dangerous but for me having like I, I like there's very few there's very few like academic like statistical subjects where I felt very comfortable but like doing survival analysis happened to be one of them. Yeah. Where I'd already made the, all of the mistakes that I already make in grad school, so like I can easily handle this and not worry about like misinterpreting what my coefficients are or um, overfitting a, a small model like that. Yeah, I mean, I've always found with R that like when it works, it's like it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas whereas like Python. You, you kind of have to like put a little bit more effort into like trying to make it do the thing that you want it to do. Uh, it just gives you a, a slightly more open world. Yeah, I think, and I think that it still holds it. Like, if you're more on the analytics and statistics side, you should probably lean towards R. And if you're more like, if you have more of an engineering workflow, yeah, then Python probably better suits suit you. But honestly, they can all do. Yeah, like they're, they're both Turing complete. There's a lot of overlap now, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They both do a lot of the same stuff. I don't feel like, like it's hurt me a little to switch back and forth because I don't. I'm not like super in depth on either of them. And basically, I was using uh, Python while the whole tidyverse thing was going on, and that seems like that's actually improved the way that R handles the data cleaning and reduction mm -hmm. aspect of um, the world much better yeah. because I was not. That was not. I would not call that a strength of ours. Back in the days when I first started using it in the like early to like 2010, 2011. Yeah, I would. I would agree with that. Like the the first time I had to to touch a data frame, 
uh, in our, like, I, I did not find it intuitive. No. And then just, like, trying to, tab, like, I remember spending a lot of time and going, like, okay, this will pay off, this will pay off. <laughs> just trying to get, like, the prop table thing to work, like, getting prop, uh, like, like prop tables working, which is, like, the reason why that was hard in R is, like, not because, you know, it, shaping the data or anything like that. It was just because, like, there's two different data structures that don't like to talk to each other or, like, I couldn't figure out how to talk, get them to talk to each other very well. Yeah, and you're like, oh, this is what the equals syntax is? Yeah. <laughs> Which one of these should I be using? Why do they both exist? Right, right. Uh, uh, and then, it, like, how, how deep does this hierarchy here go? I, yeah. it, it always takes me a little while when I start doing uh, R again to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't. I have to, like, I have to make sure that I tell it the difference between assigning a variable and, like, uh, evaluating Boolean. Yeah. Um, so I still, right now, I still yeah. go back this, and forth a lot. This is not to say, by the way, that there are not gotchas in Python. Um, especially for anyone who uh, who who has dealt with uh, you know call by call by value versus call by reference yeah, and, my, uh, and like all that stuff. My favorite is still just the like different versions of Python do different oh, yeah. things. For that's great. <laughs> yeah, that that's like that's still like to me the the example of like the best example of like why we're not close to like it just works in data yeah. science software yeah you know like you just can't like from flavor of sql to flavor of sql from version of python to version of python you can't get seven divided by three to <laughs> give you the same the same answer yeah um that that's a little that's still a little infuriating so um i think so airbnb has like um, a taxonomy of data scientists mm-hmm. and I find it pretty useful. I like theirs the best. I, like I, I think I like a lot of the meta thought and tooling that comes out of Airbnb more than other companies, and that's yeah. They've they've definitely put a lot of effort into uh, into how they like you know basically how they organize themselves, mm-hmm. and then and then also like how uh, and how that relates to like what they build, right. Yeah, I think that they're like they're thoughtful in the right ways. Like they're thoughtful the way a good like like engineering. Like we want to build this, and then they kind of re- approach hum- like their human organizations as a engineering system is what it seems like to me. Um, you know, scaling is hard for every company. Um, scaling is hard, <laughs> and they've sca- they've they've added a lot of data scientists. And yeah, people are still you know there and. They're still there. It's not. Unhappy. A, they're not doing the things I advocated in the intro. They're not smashing the windows in and mm-hmm. rioting in the streets. Um, so yeah, much respect to anyone who can scale. Right? It's hard. Mm-hmm. So like they use their taxonomy is uh, there's inference data science, there's analytics data science, and then there's machine learning data science. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know I like I like that taxonomy a lot, even mm-hmm. though like you can see that those those three things support each other and blend together yeah and and there's some overlap in the in the skill sets too yes definitely um but you can definitely um like you can draw like it allows you to like see what parts of the stack like different parts of you can own and i've definitely stepped i've swapped back and forth between analytics data science and inference because inference isn't it's not 
like it's and, not always necessary. Yeah, and and by inference you mean running experiments. Um, yes, but I also think like I think that there's a there's more like it's not just running experiments. There's mm-hmm. like when to run an experiment. Yeah, but also like a, to go back to like a simple one where like the first project that you and I kind of ever collaborated on was yeah. like a simple marketing exercise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where it yeah. was just like. This com- this company wants us to wants to wants us to pay them X dollars to segment our customers, mm-hmm. and then they did some of it for free. What was the return on that segmenting? And my analysis was like it was zero dollars <laughs> because like if the right answer was to just send the mail to everybody, so the segment the segment was useless. Yeah. Um, and I remember that project, right? And that's an inference, right? Yeah. Like that yeah. is that is like there was no experiment done. Yeah, um, there was like some analytics to it in terms yeah. of like I had to put I had to piece together like a data set that wasn't really all that cooperative. Yeah. I had to reach out to our engineering department to help me, yeah, like map uh, like normalize some addresses. Yeah. Um, so so like one of the ways you could think. Uh, uh, about inference then is sort of in like almost like scenario construction and comparison. Right. And that's that's why I think experimentation is a subset yeah. of it. Is it like, you know, they have a fancy sounding like college major these days called decision science, which is like an amalgamation of game theory and statistics and a little bit of like organizational mm-hmm. um, economics and probably, probably there's some cognitive science in there, mm-hmm. which happens to be almost exactly what I studied in school, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just because that was what my interests were. I was yeah. like, I came from, like, I was interested in philosophy of mind a lot, and, like, the economic approach to decision-making had some insights for that. There was, like, some melding together. I took a lot of cognitive psych- psychology classes. I th- think a lot about, like, cognitive bias. Mm-hmm. Um, that's useful for, like, these inference decisions. And then I came late, actually, into statistics. In yeah. That, like... My first introduction to it was like this doesn't this seems like I've taken math courses before and this seems like a type of math where they've just made a bunch of arbitrary yeah. assumptions. Yeah, um, <laughs> so I'm I'm going to say something here that probably there's going to be at least a subset of people out there who are going to angry. who are going to immediately dislike me. Hot take corner. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I'm going to be totally honest. Like I do not understand statistics as a field of study. Um, like to me, like when I when I look at statistics as a field, like statistics is a tool that you use to solve other problems. <laughs> um, and and then like on top of that, like like just looking at the development of of the field itself, uh, it is. Uh, uh, there's a significant amount of path dependence there that like if you were developing s- statistics today my you know my argument is it would not look the way that we've constructed it because part of the reason it looks the way that it does is because you didn't have computers available uh, and so it was really really hard to calculate things over large numbers and so you had to figure out like heuristics uh, and like sort of like like rules based on heuristics and mathematical uh, uh, kind of, you know, tricks and uh, approximations for how you could tell if the populations of two things were different. But like to me, like 
the like statistics is the tool that you use for that. Like the field of study is what problem am I trying to solve within with these two populations? I, I think I agree with that. I think on some, I believe more in the philosophy of science than I believe in statistics as a practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, there's like a really good author that I'll link to in the show notes called uh, her name is Deborah Mayo. I hope that I'm pronouncing that right, but I probably aren't. But she lean, like she kind of puts together the groundwork of like what scientists try to do in the lab with mm-hmm. like what is statistics advocating as a philosophy of science and how a lot of it doesn't quite connect. Mm-hmm. Although she, you know, she makes the case like she gives you the the world where it does as well. Interesting. Um, I don't believe in a generalized statistics that is useful across fields. I don't think. And I think that the one that we study in school, you look, you squint at it, and you see, oh, this is this is psychology, right? Like this, like you can see that it was born like uh, studying human distributions of traits, yeah. and that it was refined on uh, agronomy, uh, like which is the study of like inputs into like farm, uh, like you know, like how you know, you add this much fertilizer, yeah. this much water. And then, what does your your yield look like? Yeah, I mean, my my exposure to it was obviously a little bit different because, uh, like in physics, you didn't even take any classes in school, right? Like, it was just like <laughs> oh, you took, I took classes. You know what I mean? Like you took. <laughs> I thought you t- you may, you mainly took the f- physics orientated. Yeah, like, in yeah, yeah. Classes, I, right? I had a very very heavy major, uh, and so you know, basically, like my. Like when when you're when you're a physicist, your first exposure to stats tends to show up when you have to analyze the results of an experiment, and you're trying to figure out well what are the error bars on this, uh, and and you know if you look at the history of physics, they like developed a whole bunch of methodologies on this kind of kind of independently that are exactly the same methodologies as the ones that you run into in psychology and all of the other places. Although I think the closeness to computer science makes it a little different. Like, so a lot of... Fisher developed a lot of methods for psychology that were, like, literally impractical, Mm -hmm. but probably more correct. Mm -hmm. But, like, now that there's computers, people tend to use them more often. Using the Fisher exact test is, like, a like a better way of like testing whether two things are independent of each other than mm-hmm. the standard one. But for until we invented computers and because until they became widespread in like psychology departments would use like a different two by two analysis. Um, but I feel like physics has always had more direct access to like those big mainframes. That's well so you'll see yeah. more you'll see out of physicists um, greater propensity to do bootstrapping yeah. or something that is more like, like it's a when I was learning econometrics, that was regarded as like, well, we'll get to that in the three hundred four class if we if we get to it, yeah. Rather than a core technique, yeah. Because honestly, Stata like Stata, you open up like a large CSV in Stata of the era on your your computer, and it will melt your like <laughs> your your uh, melt your CPU. I was trying to forget. Like I, I actually literally melted a computer from opening up too large of a, a file on, but I can't remember which part of the computer actually died. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I, I definitely had access to mainframes. We didn't worry about that. Right. Right. So that. 
that lends itself to that. And I think that's part of why I don't believe in a generalized view mm-hmm. of statistics. Partially, it's because um, how, what tools you should be using to analyze, uh, like, let's say, the output of an election versus, like, the output of an experiment are incredibly different. Mm-hmm. And whether or not, like, you can assume away your the independence of your errors, like... Yeah, it, it like moves from like a strongly implausible thing to like a yeah that's probably fine um, from field to field um, so fast and like it, it's yeah. more of a hazard like and I, I you know yeah, I have that, friends who that. studied statistics in school and they'll tell you that like it's actually kind of worse to walk into a job with that as your grounding because you like it's so abstract that you kind of take it for granted that you can apply it to any field without studying it deeply first yeah and that's usually like they almost all have some horror story of where they were like trying to apply what they learned to school and they're just like it just immediately blew up in their face yeah um so i believe in econometrics i believe in psychometrics i believe in whatever the i don't know if you all have it like i don't know if you all have a prefix slash metrics thing uh we do not have a prefix slash metrics thing right and i believe that you can construct a big meta use this thing when use that thing when but it's impractical yeah and not of much use to anyone yeah and i I really admire the people like andrew gelman who can kind of pull themselves back from their particular field of study and give you advice that seems actually useful across things yeah um yeah i mean i i will say that the the thing that does tend to get glossed over if you have a, a physics sort of base background is the correlation of the error terms. Because, I mean, you know, when I was analyzing particle accelerator experiments, I never worried about that. Like, every event is basically independent, uh, with the exception of the fact that it was measured by the same machine. But, like, we had put a ton of effort into characterizing the machine, and if there was any correlation between the parts of the machine, you'd just rebuild the machine, right? Like, it, it was designed to be as independent as, as, as possible, and that meant that for the most part, like, you could rely on, on like, any correlation between, between your, your, uh, uh, your, like, error terms being, like, you know, third or fourth order and, like, and not having a feedback loop such that, like, it, like, built into itself and and started to overwhelm the other terms. And so it was just a thing you didn't worry about. Right. And and just in case this is not a familiar terminology, I'm not, and I actually don't think a lot of, like, this is one of the bad parts of statistics is, like, actually I'm not sure a bunch of people use the same, like, use correlated error terms as the like they use that terminology for what we're talking about. We're talking about bias. Like we're effectively talking about bias in that, like if your measurement is wrong on one part of your, like on one subsample, that it's more likely to be like, that makes it so that it's more likely to be wrong in another um, subsample in the same direction. Yeah. So, so, so not the measurements themselves, which can also have, have correlation between them. But the, uh, but 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 sort of the the tolerances or errors around those those measurements. I think you can use it as both a, like did you like did you measure like you stuck the thermometer yeah. in the vat? Was the reading wrong? Like 
like was your instrument like it can be used in both the yeah. in both senses of the like literal measurement bias like like instrument bias as well as prediction bias yeah. where you predicted this thing wrong and therefore you are likely to predict this other thing wrong and the electoral college is like a the easy to remember and terrifying example yeah. where like if you yeah, like have a model if you're like wrong in one state it's quite likely that you're, or, or if you're wrong in one county, it's pretty likely that you're going to be wrong in like all of the other counties in the same direction. Right. So they're not independent. Right. And if you want to bring it back to that, like I think, and again, I'm using this because it's accessible. Um, like there was a large argument between 538 and other websites that were forecasting the probability of like Trump versus Hillary winning the election and 538 had a model that allowed for like the possibility of correlated error terms and they gave Trump like a much higher probability of winning than say like I think um, Sam, Sam Wong out of Princeton mm-hmm. was the, the chief person who like thought that they were overplaying that mm-hmm. um, and his model had more of a, a point of view that like basically each measurement in each county was independent yeah, which is not again like I think most like in econ correlated error terms is like such a like <laughs> it's it's a normal thing mm-hmm. to have and in fact like one of the things that like if you'll find like economists like complaining about like why they don't like to use R is because Stata has like literally when you do when you turn on your like t-test for a regression model yeah. you can go comma R uh-huh. <laughs> and it's it it's sort of a lie, but it like theoretically makes your your t tests more robust to correlated errors. Um, Magic, <laughs> yeah. Through through means that I am positive almost zero of the professors or students understand, including yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the the thing that that I will say is is, is just from from a from a pragmatic perspective, uh, when you're doing product experimentation or uh, or like any kind of feature development, uh, like basically like in your day-to-day job in a commercial context, uh, correlated errors are really common. They're really common and they're a reason to not go deep on modeling. Yeah. Like the, you're not, you're not technically doing anything about it when you add more variables yeah. to correct for correlated er- error terms. Like, you could be, but you're probably not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, like, if you suspect you're correlated error term, like, you have correlated errors, your objective for the analysis should be to get out as soon, like, get out of the analysis as soon as possible. Yeah. Right? Like, do what you think it gives you the, paints the most conservative picture, knowing that that's, that's there, and there's just not that much you can do about it. Yeah, kind of, like, look at the decision that has to be made, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the costs of that decision being wrong relative to however much work you're going to have to put in yes. to like try to fix the correlation problem and just like get to an answer as quickly as you can and move on with your life. Yeah, and especially like it becomes like a rhetorical question as much as like a scientific one. Yeah. Where it's like how convincing are like you've got this difference and how like how convincing is it that this will go away if all of the errors happen with each other yeah and you know you it's, it gets hard um, to like yeah. say that you're giving a discipline answer yeah um, when that's there but like it's still you know you try your best but you don't you don't overspend on that problem
problem because it's really hard to solve. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. So we wandered a little bit away <laughs> from. Uh, a, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. My first love is inference data science. Yeah. And like in some version, I'm doing some version of that at all of the companies that I've ever worked at. My work. Man, I don't know if you're even going to have time to get into the actual workflow, but <laughs> uh, the the problem is, is like there's only there's a limited amount of investment that an inference needs, yeah. depending on the situation you're in, um, and also like it needs some it needs some investment in order to do, if you're going to do experimentation and when you have things like I think marketing problems in particular where causality is like yeah. a big issue. You need that, and like, is the company moving along fast? Like, does it have the infrastructure to do that experiment? Yeah. If it doesn't, then like, I'm going to work on other stuff, yeah. more data engineering looking tasks, like building tables and like just counting stuff. Um, yeah. So, so in that sense, like, a better question might be, you know, basically because because like you don't necessarily have. A, a standardized workflow mm -hmm. like you're kind of looking at it like all right i'm gonna come in figure out well what problems like actually need to be solved here that no one else is touching mm -hmm. and are valuable uh a better question might be like okay so in your in your idealized scenario uh like even at like even in like a high level abstract sense what tooling do you have available to you that like kind of makes your world frictionless? Right. So and, like lets you do all the things that you might want to do. Right. So in in my world, like my favorite problems are ones where like they're not necessarily well scoped from the start, mm -hmm. but they're also not completely open ended. Mm -hmm. Like I hate problems that are just like tell me all you know about <laughs> like blah. And I just, I never know what to do with that. Like, uh -huh. to me, it's like, write a, write a letter to no one um, <laughs> is what you're, you're asking me to do. But, like, I love, a, like, a problem which is, like, we're having an argument where X believes, like, that we should do this and this other person believes that we should do this other thing. And I can be like, well, that's great. Let's start by defining terms and being like, what's the difference between doing this and doing that? Like, is there a cost on these things? Mm -hmm. And trying to identify that. And then you can kind of proceed to analysis mm -hmm. once you've defined that there's anything. Like, once you've gotten to, like, the point where, and, I, you know, the, the first step of, like, the first step of this is always, like, is there an actual difference yeah. between these two scenarios? Is there, like, logical things you can do to, like, I, I, like, I definitely regard, like, the first step of any, like, of these decision analyses as, like, are there just simple logical steps you can take to rule one out or like drastically like await it in front of the other? Yeah, and like examples of that might be like, this might be correct, but would take more energy than is available in the universe to implement. That's so we very, should do the other thing. They're very, very <laughs> physics. <laughs> I, 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 often, I often approach things from that type of perspective where yeah. it's like, well, if we were to do, like, if we got one loss of this type doing this activity, say it was, like, you know, insure, like, going into insurance when you're, like, running a real estate company or something yeah. like that, then it would probably wipe out the profits for an entire year. Like, if you can do some <laughs> simple thing like that. Yeah. I often think that would have made me a very bad hire for, like, certain parts of Google where they often do 
like boil the ocean type stuff uh-huh. would like send a car to every neighborhood to map it out <laughs> i feel like i would have been on the other side of that argument most of the time um but i think you know yeah i mean i i am often times on like i fall on that side of the argument about like basically like like sometimes you do look at a problem and you're essentially like this would take all of our resources to execute on but the value proposition on the other side is so high that it's worth putting all of our chips like like onto onto the table here like especially if you i mean if you're sitting inside of like IBM like that is almost never the right choice but if you're sitting inside a startup where your situation is default dead anyway like those like you have to take those those kinds of risks uh, in a few targeted spots uh, but like they also have to be targeted because like 99 times out of 100 they will fail uh, and so like like you better be uh, you 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 kind of have to know like what the risks are and and how you can mitigate them even if you know that the probability of success is not high right and I, I think I like having a, an econ background for that type of question mm-hmm. where and also informed by some amount of cognitive science and psychology where oftentimes it's like okay in order like in order to make this decision we're actually going to have to convince a set number of people mm-hmm. or this group of people or like and will they be what kind of evidence would they be amenable to yeah would they find convincing is a key part of like what type of analysis should we do what decision is actually plausible yeah can we like can we all agree that that's that's yeah. the direction that we go and so like there there's there has to be this like investigative investigative period where you're like establishing that everyone agrees on the the parameters of the problem and then like you invest some time in establishing the, the like the facts of the matter that would be relevant to it yeah um and then I don't do a ton of planning from there, yeah. Because I have often found that it's wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, SQL's my first tool because I feel like that's like it wasn't always my first tool. Um, yeah. But most of the companies that I've worked at over the last eight years, like the easiest to automate data comes in SQL. So like, yeah. if you're gonna have something that's gonna make like have some possibility of turning into a tool or having a scalable impact like you should start where the relational database is mm-hmm. um, and then usually like it's it's a lot of like even simple problems at early companies that's a lot of work a lot of the time to yeah. just like count some stuff yeah. right like to just turn turn relation like a bunch of stuff scattered a bunch across across a bunch of tables that's not labeled that great or it's just not intended to be used for your analysis into a thing that like like i often feel like okay i'm done by the time i get to the the thing where like i have a reasonable set of facts about like the problem that i'm working on yeah i feel like i understand it a lot of the time and i kind of know where the analysis is going to take yeah my 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 favorite story related to that is uh so i i uh, um, I have a friend who was an early data person at a major internet company, mm-hmm. um, and they brought him on because the CEO wanted to know how many users they had. 
It's not an easy question uh, like, to answer. Yeah, that was like literally the question was, you know, they were the company at this point, I think was, I mean, it had grown like crazy, but was only, you know, maybe a year, year and a half old. Uh, and essentially, like the question they had was, I give a board presentation once a quarter. I need to tell the board how many users we have. None of the engineers can solve this problem. Yeah. Uh, so they like they like brought him on, and and like his 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 favorite kind of anecdote about this was like you know basically uh, he came on, and then six months later they had a count. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there like like a like a lot of companies out there are probably that that's not like not only not an easy question to answer. Yeah. But like, imagine teleconferencing. Yeah. Like, how many users do they have? Is super hard. Yeah. And then like, instrumenting like then there's like the difference between a user who's provisioned an account and then a user like someone actively yeah, using like, a product. Yeah. Uh, that becomes like the more you, dependent you are on front front end as opposed to server side logging, like the harder that question becomes to answer. Yeah. Well, and then like nine times out of ten, if this is the first web application that somebody's built. Like they might not even be logging all of like like they might not be timestamping everything correctly. Yeah, they like, uh, it, like it, what it is might time not anyway? Even be, like it might not even be in in the data model at all mm-hmm. in terms of like oh this account was created at this time. Like people would be surprised how often that gets forgotten. Right. So that. That usually, like, it depends on whether I'm, like, investigating a relationship or just establishing the presence or absence or quantity of a thing. Mm-hmm. What happens next? I love, like, I do I do as much of the work in SQL as I can mm-hmm. because I don't like transferring. I don't like transferring things in between programming languages because it's usually a point of failure. Mm-hmm. Although I'm getting less enamored of that position as, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like caching. When you're querying a database directly, it's slower than if you can pull down some portion of it. And it's like basically build a data set and then do your stuff. Right. I mean, the problem is that 99% of the mistakes I make are in the data set and yeah. almost zero, like what to include, exclude, etc. Yeah. And how to, ag- like, especially on like how to aggregate yeah. or uniquify them. Yeah. So usually like that, that's, that's a problem at the SQL level rather yeah. than at the analysis level. Yeah. Um, but querying Redshift directly as opposed to like pulling down a, a couple of tables into um, some like Spark in Databricks or something like that is like, oh yeah, like it takes a lot longer. Yeah. Like there's a lot longer in between queries. Um, yeah. But then you're also paying the tax of like switching, context switching between languages and that can be that can be problematic, and then also like how shareable do I want the whole thing to be? Yeah. Right. I still find Python and SQL and R to be less shareable with people who are not data scientists than SQL is. And I, like in my ideal world, like I can like I have all the SQL there. I have whatever descriptives or charts or graphs yeah. I made in uh, R or Python there and like I can kind of seamlessly go back and forth between all of them until I get to a reasonable prototype and then I write words. Yeah. Right. But one thing I never do in SQL 
is descriptors, mm-hmm. right? Like, other than, like, literal, and especially, like, there are times when you actually literally only care about the average. Yeah. Um, which, they're pretty frequent, actually, but if I'm doing, like, you know, like if I literally want anything more than an average, mm-hmm. I'm importing stuff into Python or R and doing, yeah. like, a five-number five, key, five, a five number summary. Yeah. Um, data quality stuff, I try to keep within SQL because that's where I can actually do something. Yeah, I mean, I've I found for me like I, I I definitely agree with you on on like the shareable piece, and on and on the access piece. Like, you know, again, like ninety nine times out of a hundred, like the data you want is in a relational database. Mm-hmm. SQL is the language of a relational database. It's the like, lingua franca. Of data. Yeah, like that's how you go get it. <laughs> Uh, it is also a really nice interface language in terms of like interfacing with other people because you can do a lot of things knowing like 20 commands. Uh, and so it, it does tend to be like relatively easy for people to learn. Um, and therefore, like if you like look at a company, you're gonna have a lot more people who know how to who know how to use and read SQL than than like other things. Um, the place where I found that it falls down is basically that, like, you have to, like, like because SQL is an interface language, it's not really a programming language. Oh, no. Uh, and that essentially means that if you want to reuse something, you're in copy and paste land. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you make a table. Right, um, like you, you actually like make it into a, an actualized table. Y- yes, uh, but it's still not. It's still, it's still, there's still there's a lot of limits. To yeah, that yeah. It, it's like well, if you want two tables that are kind of similar but not exactly the same, like it, like making reusable components in SQL is is just super painful. And mm-hmm. and I know that there are folks out there who are going to say, well, PL SQL lets you do that and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm not I, uh, I don't I don't I personally don't like that. I'd rather use I'd rather use a real programming language at yeah. that point and have there be a pass off, a yeah. clear pass off between I'm establishing a data set yeah. uh, which is relational and to I am now performing functions on objects. Yeah. Well, it's and like PL SQL, like historically, was, I mean, may not have been invented by them, but it was a thing that was pushed by Oracle so that because they didn't want developers going out of their database to do anything, mm-hmm. right? Like their feeling was the more people can do on the database, the, the better our lock in becomes. So there's probably worlds where like that is the right choice, but like I, I always have a lot of skepticism around that when when effectively like the decision was made by a commercial organization that like had a bunch of other interests. Yes. Again, like I I like I like using SQL. I like sticking with the same programming language for as long as I can go yeah. on on a project. Um, but I also like the more I use it. Like when I first started using SQL, my 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 instinct was, why is this like so stupidly limited? Yeah. Like, of course, I want aggregate functions, and I want like JSON abstract, and like I want it to just be like a programming language that it can do data builds in. Yeah. And now that I've been using it for a long longer time, I always feel like kind of appreciate what it does. <laughs> yeah, I always feel like adding power to SQL is not like result in the best data. Yeah. So like array functions and 
adding JSON into SQL like increases the number of things you can use SQL for, and it also reduces its abilities as a relational database. Yeah. And over time, I've become more. I've had more. I've gotten more respect for like the dumb cob normal thing that all computer scientists learn and all yeah. computer scientists hate. Yeah. Um, because it's very limiting. But like it establishes these rules that are very powerful that you can then combine, and especially like it lets you know what you can expect, and yeah. you don't have to like plan for yeah. weird edge cases when people are actually designing even data warehouses. Which I know it's weird to try and go for some form of like engineering using the engineering term of normalized data in a data warehouse because it's not exactly meant to yeah. do that. But like when you adhere to those structures. Like it's easier to develop simple reports, yeah. Because you, like, kind of don't have a lot of edge cases in your data, yeah. And adding JSON blobs and all of like and advanced statistics and trying to do real programming and real data analysis in SQL leads to lots of situations where you have to break those expectations, and it ends up costing you a lot in terms of like it probably increases the amount of errors that you're making, and um, it makes it so that it's. It's just harder to expect things to to function the right way. Yeah. Um, so I'd much rather keep the database relational and keep the yeah. object-oriented programming. Well, you just we just call it the procedural. Right? Is that the right word? Um, there's declarative versus procedural. Yeah, we're, we're gonna edit this all out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you keep the regular programming to like have there be a clear separation between those two things yeah um right so the end of the like the end of that cycle is probably not a decision yeah because like one there's just always like you come you write your write what you think there's always feedback that's important there's always feedback that's not important yeah and then you have to have this conversation about them. You, people are either convinced uh, that they should do something differently or they're not. Yeah. Um, and then so you either move on or you don't. So it's, so it's more likely to be a, like, iteration as opposed to a decision. Right. But usually you've made, like, if you've done, like, the part where you, I feel more confident about my abilities now than when I first started is that I've made early choices that make it so that I can, like, I can ask a second question of the data. Mm-hmm. In a way that doesn't cause me to rewrite the whole thing. Yeah, um, yeah, that is that is definitely a thing I've I've seen as analysts grow and get you know and and essentially like develop their uh, their skill set. Like the best ones tend to pick that up. Yeah, um, I mean I'm not perfect at it for sure. Like it, it requires like and it's more of an instinctual thing that like it'd be hard for me to explain. Yeah. how it is that I do that and believe me I, as, a, as a manager once I tried and I was rated very low we, on my ability to do that we someone got failed at that yeah somebody got out the like here's how you draw a horse it's like you draw a line you draw another line you draw a horse yeah <laughs> like my explanation of that yeah um, the yeah I mean I think the first time I first second third seventh time I tried to explain unit testing to anybody mm-hmm. like it, it was a similar thing the the key part there is like I'm more on the side of like get out a first version of it mm-hmm. and see get feedback yeah. than I am like make sure it's perfect yeah um, 
the the thing that I can share with you, at least working mostly with product managers, is that they care more about whether it supports their hypothesis than whether it's perfect. <laughs> oh, and like, if it doesn't support their hypothesis, they're more likely to be upset. <laughs> um, and if you make a mistake, they're like, eh, like directionally, is it still leading the same way? Um, like, I care about the about the mistakes, but like, it is a thing that I have now internalized that I care more than anyone else cares. Yeah. Um, there, you know, like there are other people that will be like, I can't believe you made, you know, if you make a mistake on something. There are people that will get upset about it, but like I, yeah. like like I've moved emotionally past that to where like I'm you know I'm tr- trying to do the thing where I'm taking away the 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 obvious sources of error. You can't do everything about all of them. Mm-hmm. It's much better to get it out and say like, here's my cut at this. Like check to see what you think. Like the like as careful as you ever are. A second set of eyes will always find something. something. Yeah. And especially, I've moved companies twice in the last two years. Like, I don't know the schema at either of these places very well. The odds that, like, I am misinterpreting this column, which is, you know, and I'm not I'm not mad that it's not documented, yeah. by the way. I wouldn't document these things either. It's not possible. Yeah. My experience with documentation is all that happens is you have another source of confusion as it gets out of sync with what's actually there. Oh, all right. Yeah. Come at <laughs> that, us. Come at us, can, people. Can, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we're going to come back to that PM comment, too, mm-hmm. because I think that probably warrants a full episode just in, like, the various people outside of your data org like what is their relationship to data and like it differs by company yeah, by company yeah, and like what are the failure modes and kind of how you can how you can keep things on the rails <laughs> i think being as transparent as possible about like where you're firm on the assumptions and what yeah. you're confident in and being letting people be able to go drill into your code and your assumptions yeah is all like it's never a bad move uh, not everyone's going to take you up on it, and yeah. you have to like the most dangerous moment is when you write an analysis. You know, people are going to love the conclusion of yeah. And like, if you're not the one, like, like if you're not, if there's no one who's going to challenge it because they're not sure they believe it, yeah. Then like, you have to be that person, and you have to like step up your game at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Like basically, you've got to be the skeptical party. Yes. If it's the thing like. If we do this, our company makes a bajillion dollars, then, like, you need to be the skeptical party. Like, you've got to be the IT guy with your arms crossed going, yeah. like, yeah, I don't think we should buy this thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, so that, and I, it was like, I'm, we made a, we were doing, like, our engagement, our engagement survey, uh-huh. and I was, like, thinking to myself that there's, like, certain traits that almost every data science department I've been a part of has in common, and I think there's, like, an anti-authority like streak that attracts yeah. people to the field <laughs> um and that you know you are like it, you, sometimes you are the authority yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think that i think that roughly yeah, that roughly cur- covers, covers my workflow at, yeah. at open door i was basically building a data pipeline that predicted things like yeah. it was i can do that too like yeah. that's like when there's there's like i did some moonlighting as an actual inference data scientist but i was like building a predictive pipeline yeah there. yeah i mean the the way that i kind of think about uh all of this stuff and like i like airbnb's taxonomy too like mm-hmm. i thought it was you know it's a very uh it was a straightforward way to think about the world uh obviously like your company has to be structured in a certain way to take advantage of that and and like that's fine 
Uh, but the way that I've sort of thought about it is it's like, like the skill set kind of spans. And if you want to be in one in one bucket versus the other, like there's nothing that would kind of block you from moving modular learning a few new things. Uh, but there is kind of like, like within each of those buckets, it's really more about mindset than skill set. Like, like what do you want your like like what do you gravitate towards in terms of the problems you want to solve, and what do you gravitate towards in terms of like what you would like your outputs to look like? Right. I was thinking about that in reference to the taxonomy that I, I can see people moving from analytics to machine learning. Yeah. And I can see people moving from analytics to inference. Yeah. And God knows you can hop back and forth between both of those yeah i do think it's a little more challenging to go from inference to machine learning and back because that is that is the hardest it, just shift. because they're to both of them that requires like specialized study there, i don't uh, there there are some mindset differences too in terms of like what you should be worrying about mm -hmm. like like to me I, I've, I've watched people make that transition in 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 both directions and like where where I've seen things become, or like where I've seen folks get tripped up is in, it's almost like the things you worry about around the edge cases in inference are not things you worry about when you're solving a machine learning problem for the most part, but the things that you worry about in edge cases for machine learning are like not things you worry about uh, in terms of edge cases on 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 the like inference side, so so it's like basically like where the big potholes are 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 like they're completely different in both in 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 uh, both cases. Uh, so I I agree with you that that's the harder transition to make, like in in both directions. Uh, but I've seen it work too. Okay, so we covered a lot of ground today. <laughs> we yes, we we wandered a bit. And we yeah. covered a lot of a lot of things. Um, I enjoyed discussing. Hopefully, we didn't meander too much. Yeah, and I suspect that there's some stuff in there too that we should unpack later and maybe do a couple more episodes on. Yeah, I think documentation is particularly one where like we can probably get a whole episode out of that. Um, yeah, working with other people. So yeah, thanks for joining us. If you want to send us feedback about today's episode, um, we are at of differences on Twitter. Also, you can email us at feed.back at smalldiffcast.com. I'm Old Jacket on Twitter. Uh, and I'm at Ian Blue One. Uh, we do have one rating on iTunes Yay. now. Uh, thank you, Dan. Um, and we have a five star rating. So if you either want to keep it that way or do something about that, <laughs> go, go right ahead. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening.